Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first timer, welcome. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, what about making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Avi Schleim. A distinguished historian and a fellow of the British Academy, he is Emeritus Professor of International Relations at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and a regular contributor to The Guardian, Middle East Eye, and other publications. Among his critically acclaimed books are The Iron Wall, Israel, and the Arab World. In June, One World published Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew, and the book, as well as the current Gaza War, are the subject of today's conversation. Professor Schleim, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you. In your book, you begin chapter one with these two sentences, and I'll, I'll quote, if I had to identify one key factor that shaped my early relationship to Israeli society, it would be an inferiority complex. I was an Iraqi boy in a land of Europeans. Your family had left Baghdad for the newly created state of Israel, to listeners who have not yet read the book, had the pleasure of reading your book, why the inferiority complex? Um, the key concept in the book is the concept of an Arab Jew, that it is possible to be both Jewish and Arab at the same time. Uh, this is denied by Israelis today. They say it's a contradiction in terms. It's an ontological impossibility uh, if you are a Jew, you cannot be an Arab, and if you are an Arab, you cannot be a Jew. So my book is a refutation of this Israeli belief, because I was born in Baghdad in 1945, uh, and in 1950 we left Baghdad for Israel, and we were Arab Jews. We were Iraqis whose religion happened to be Judaism. We spoke Arabic at home. Our culture was Arab culture. We had many uh, Muslim friends, and there was a long tradition of Muslim-Jewish coexistence and even harmony. So for my family and me, Muslim-Jewish coexistence was not an abstract idea or an ambition. It was the everyday reality. And Iraq didn't have a Jewish problem. Iraq had many minorities, and the Jews were one minority among others. And there was a long tradition of religious tolerance. And in Iraq, we were equal. We, had, uh, we were equal to all the other minorities. And how did that change when your family immigrated to Israel? When we moved to Israel... We were outsiders in the sense that Israel was a European-style society. The Zionist movement, which led to the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, 
was a movement by European Jews for European Jews. So the ethos of the newly born state of Israel was a um, Eurocentric one. Uh, there was from the beginning a cleavage, uh, tensions between Ashkenazi Jews, the Jews of Europe, and Oriental Jews, Jews from the Arab lands who collectively are called Mizrahim. And as a boy, I felt this very acutely. I felt I was looked down upon by my new society. This is not to say that I encountered direct or overt discrimination, but rather that it was in the air, the prejudice, the disdain for Oriental Jews uh, in Israel. And I internalized the values of this uh, society, that everything Arab was considered primitive and backward. The Arabic language was considered an ugly, guttural uh, language. And I internalized these values. And my book begins, the opening scene is when my father comes to me in the street when I'm playing with my friends and he speaks to me in Arabic and I'm acutely embarrassed. And I wanted to say, dad, it's okay to speak Arabic at home, uh, but in front of my friends, I would rather you spoke to me in Hebrew, except that he couldn't speak Hebrew. So there was the problem of language, but because I was an Iraqi boy in a Western-style society dominated by Ashkenazim, I uh, had a sense of inferiority, and this sense of inferiority defined my relationship with Israeli society. And I write about it very frankly in my memoirs, because there is no point in writing an autobiography if you are not going to be frank. Mm, yeah, and the, the, the anecdote about your father and the shame that you felt captures that sense of insecurity, of, of, of inferiority that you felt as a boy. You, you write that the exodus of Iraqi Jews was, quote, the tragic end of Babylonian Jewry, which had gone on for thousands of years, and that what has happened to Arab Jews once they arrived in Israel was, quote, a systematic process to delegitimize our heritage and erase our cultural roots. Why did that happen? And what were the political motives behind that? There were Jewish communities throughout the Arab world, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Egypt, in Iraq. But the Jewish community in Iraq was the most prosperous, the most successful, and the best integrated of all uh, Jewish communities in the Middle East. And we have deep roots in the country, two and a half millennia, going back to the Babylonian exile. So we are deeply integrated into Iraqi society, and the Jews played a very constructive part in nation building in at every level of Iraqi society, after the formation of Iraq in the aftermath of the First World War. There were 135,000 Jews in Iraq in 1950. Then, in that year, the Iraqi government passed the law which said any Jew who um, 
wants to leave the country is free to do so. They have a year to register to leave. And not many Jews registered to leave because uh, they were deeply rooted and happy in uh, uh, Iraq. But in the course of the next year, there was persecution by the uh, Iraqi government of Jews in the aftermath of the 1948 Arab-Israeli war. And there was another factor, uh, which is that five bombs were planted in Jewish sites. And by the end of 1952, only about 10,000 Jews remained in Iraq, and they were not badly treated, and 125,000 Jews ended up in Israel. So this was a very traumatic event. It was complete uprooting of Jewish society from Iraq. And when we arrived in Israel, we were treated as second-class citizens. We didn't have a very good reception. Those bombs that you mentioned, you did some investigative work on that. And, and the suggestion is that Israelis may have been behind the bombing in order to encourage Iraqi Jews to leave. I mean, how much substance do you think there is to that allegation? Because because it's quite startling. It is a startling allegation because Zionism was meant to create a safe haven for Jews. And here there was an example of the Zionist movement actually planting bombs uh, to frighten Jews to leave the home countries. There were always rumors, persistent rumors in Israel, uh, that the Zionist movement had a hand in the bombs. And I always was fascinated by this question, uh, and I investigated it, and I came across two types of evidence which confirmed that Israeli intelligence and the Zionist underground in Iraq played a part. Indeed, that they were responsible for three out of the five bombs, not all of them, three out of the five. And the two types of evidence were one oral history. I spoke to a friend, elderly friend of my mother, Iraqi Jew, called Yaakov Karkukli, who was in the Zionist underground in Iraq. Uh, he told me in details about their activities, and he told me that one of his colleagues, Yosef Basri, was the one who planted the bombs, and that his controller was an Israeli intelligence officer. And the other more important piece of evidence was a page from an Iraqi police Baghdad police report about the interrogation of Yosef Basri and what he said during the interrogation. And he was tried and charged not with all five bombs, but only the three bombs for which he was responsible. So I concluded that this is incontrovertible evidence that Israel, the Zionist underground in Iraq, played a part in the exodus, in creating the panic that led to the exodus of the Jews to Israel. 
You you mentioned your mother, Saida, who comes across in the book as just an extraordinary person. Can you talk a little bit about her story and, and the person that she was? My mother, Saida, was a very remarkable person. She's the main source for my book, the hero of the book, because I left I was five years old when we left Baghdad, and I only have some disjointed and incoherent memories. But she had a phenomenal memory, and she loved talking about the good old days in Baghdad. She died in Israel two years ago, age 96. She was lucid to the end. And I uh, uh, interviewed her endlessly and took a lot of notes about our life in Baghdad. And I tried to incorporate these details uh, in my book to recreate uh, a world that has gone away, that has been blown away of Iraqi Jews, of, uh, of Arab Jews uh, in Iraq. And my mother was born in Iraq. She was an Iraqi, but she was very cosmopolitan. She went to the Alliance Israelite Universal School, which was a network of Jewish schools throughout the Ottoman Empire, where they taught them four languages, French, English, Arabic, and Hebrew, and the teaching language was French. So she was fluent in French and um, in, in English, as well as, of course, Arabic. Uh, and she remembered a visit of Faisal, King Faisal I of Iraq to a school in the 1920s. And this was significant because King Faisal tried to embrace the Jews and, um, and to forge Iraq into one uh, nation. So my mother was a very good example of uh, an Arab Jew, someone who was loved the country, was committed the country and had a very happy life. Um, my father was a very rich merchant and she led, she was 17 years old when her parents took her out of school and made her marry my father who was considerably older, but he was very rich and um, she led the life of leisure with a lot of servants and until the crisis of 1950 when our life, as she put it in, in her words, she, as she put it, when Israel was created, everything was turned upside down. Our old style of life was no longer possible. Uh, life became unsafe in Baghdad, and we moved to Israel. And in the process, my father lost most of his wealth, uh, and when our money ran out in Israel, my mother had to go out to work. She worked as a telephonist in the town hall, uh, but she was very, I think women in general are more resilient and more resourceful than men. My father was a broken man. He was unemployed. He was mildly depressed, whereas my mother became the breadwinner. Uh, she adjusted to Israeli society, and um, she made... Israel her own, but if you look at the bigger picture around her, it's a sad story 
of a whole family being uprooted from Iraq to Israel. My father never found his feet in the new society. Uh, my two grandmothers who came with us to Israel, they never adjusted to the new society. They never learned Hebrew. And they used to talk about Iraq as um, Jannah Mal'Allah, as paradise. So the family, for the family as, as a whole, it wasn't uh, at all a happy move. It was a rather traumatic move. But we were privileged. We were upper middle class family. We didn't go to a transit camp, to a Ma'abara in Israel, uh, whereas the bulk of Iraqi Jews who ended up in Israel, when they arrived at the airport, they were sprayed with DDT, which was very humiliating, mm. and were put in transit camps. So it wasn't a happy end to Babylonian Jewry. Yes, and, and just the journey that you undertook. I won't, uh, for people, people need to read that story of the journey that, that you and, and your, your mother, because your father came later, undertook, which, which was quite extraordinary in itself. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the historian and author, Avi Shleim, whose latest book, Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew, is the subject of our conversation today. Arab Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. If you'd like to support that independent voice, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. I wanted to ask you now, Avi, Three Worlds was published before the latest Gaza War, but in it, in the book, you charge Israel with being an apartheid state. I want to know why you take that position, and how do you respond to those who say calling Israel an apartheid state is anti-Semitic? I don't charge Israel as an apartheid state. I simply observe the obvious reality, which is that Israel is an apartheid state. For me, it's not a matter for debate or a matter for uh, dispute. And in the last two years, Four major human rights groups have issued detailed reports, all of which conclude that Israel is an apartheid state, that Israel is guilty of the crime of apartheid as defined by the 1998 statute that established the International Criminal Court. So Israel meets the criteria of an apartheid state. The most interesting report of these four is by B'Tselem, the Israeli Human Rights Organization, because its previous reports were about Israeli human rights abuses in the occupied territories. In this last report, it says that you can no longer distinguish between the occupied territories and Israel proper because from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, there is one regime. It's an apartheid regime. It's a Jewish supremacist regime with second-class citizens, that's the Palestinian citizens of the State of Israel, and third-class citizens, if you can call them that, 
who are the Palestinians in the occupied territories who have no political rights at all. So I think it's obvious that Israel is an apartheid state. And to the people who say that to charge Israel, to call Israel an apartheid state is anti-Semitic, I say this. There's nothing anti-Semitic about criticisms of the state of Israel. I make a very, very clear distinction between anti-Semitism on the one hand, which is hatred of the Jews because they are Jews, and anti-Zionism on the other hand, which is criticisms of the state of Israel. Israel and its friends, and it has many friends around, very strong friends throughout the world, Israel and its friends deliberately, I repeat, deliberately conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism in order to silence legitimate evidence-based criticisms of uh, the state of Israel. And in this country, we've seen a very, very unfortunate phenomenon of the weaponizing of anti-Semitism in order to prevent free speech uh, on Israel, in order to protect and, and, and the government has adopted the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance of Antisemitism. It tries to impose it in, on this definition on universities, on local authorities. And it's a very flawed definition because it doesn't distinguish clearly enough between antisemitism and, and anti-Zionism. So there is nothing at all anti-Semitic in calling Israel apartheid state. You published an article in Prospect magazine last week in which you described the latest war as, quote, by far the most lethal and destructive, and it also raises the ominous specter of ethnic cleansing of a second Palestinian Nakba. The Nakba, we should explain, is the 750,000 Palestinians who are driven out of their uh, communities in 1948 as the state of Israel was birthed in violence, really. Would you go so far as to say that what is happening in Gaza right now, because the offensive has started up again, is that becoming a genocide? I wouldn't go as far as to describe what Israel is doing in Gaza today as genocide. Genocide is a very serious uh, charge, and I prefer to avoid it. Uh, What I would say is that Israel is carrying out mass slaughter on an industrial scale, an indiscriminate killing of civilians on a completely unprecedented scale. So Israel is responding to a lethal attack by Hamas on the 7th of October. It was a terrible attack on civilians, which was rightly denounced by world leaders. And I denounced Hamas attack on Israeli uh, civilians. But the Israeli response has been completely out of proportion and 
in violation of the laws of war and in violation of international humanitarian law in as much as it is directed against civilians. So the target of the Israeli uh, military offensive in Gaza is Hamas. But the scale of destruction is such that Israel is actually destroying the enclave. And in the process, it is carrying out ethnic cleansing. So there are 2.3 million people in Gaza, and 1.8 million people have been internally displaced. Israel told ordered people from the north to move down south. Many of those who obeyed the uh, order were killed by Israeli airstrikes. Then those who are in the south have been ordered by Israel to move again. And Israel has issued a very curious map with areas that are supposed to be safe, but nowhere in Gaza is safe today. So the forced displacement of a civilian population is a war crime. So Israel is definitely committing this war crime. But Israel is also carrying out ethnic cleansing in as much as it is trying to push the people in the south of Gaza across the border into Egypt's territory. And a report of um, the Israeli Ministry of in Intelligence dated 13 October reveals that there is a clear plan for Israel to depopulate Gaza and to push the civilian population into northern uh, Sinai. So this is definitely uh, ethnic cleansing. And Israel carried out ethnic cleansing in 1948. That's the Nakba. Three quarters of a million Palestinians became refugees. In June 1967, Israel captured the West Bank. And uh, there was another wave of a quarter of a million refugees. And one thing we do know from history, and that is when Israel carries out ethnic cleansing, expels Arabs, it never allows them to go back. And my very great worry is that if Israel succeeds in its design of depopulating Gaza, there would be no hope for these people of ever returning to their homes. It's a frightening scenario, Ali, and, and as you say, the extent to which it is becoming accepted government policy, given the nature of the uh, coalition that Netanyahu has cobbled together with his extreme right wing, I would describe them as fascistic uh, individuals, they themselves are calling for uh, the depopulation of Gaza, but also in the West Bank, where we're seeing settler attacks on Bedouin communities, people being driven out of their homes and off their farms. This really represents and speaks to something that you dealt with very, very eloquently in Three Worlds, which is the concept of the erasure of history, the erasure of culture that you experienced. That is what the Palestinians have experienced over decades, are experiencing now very violently. Is it something that Arab Jews share with Palestinians? And is that a common ground that could somehow be built upon, you know, looking for 
positives in this extraordinarily bleak and, and awful landscape. There is a parallel between the history of the Palestinians and the history of um, Iraqi Jews, and that is that in 1948, the Palestinians became refugees. They were displaced. Uh, some of them fled, but the majority were expelled by Israel in an exercise of ethnic cleansing. And the Jewish community in Iraq did not, for the most part, choose to move to Israel, but was forced to move. So we too were displaced. And a relative of mine, Isaac Bar Moshe, wrote a book on the exodus uh, from Iraq, in which he said, we left Iraq as, as Jews, and we arrived in Israel as Iraqis. So uh, there are parallel histories, but unfortunately, this doesn't give me any reason for hope, because many of the Mizrahim in Israel vote for the Likud and for right-wing parties. The Jews of the Arab lands could have been used by Israel uh, as a bridge with the Arab world. But the Ashkenazi elite in Israel has never wanted to use Mizrahi Jews as a bridge because they didn't want a bridge to um, the Arab world. Israel is a European-style state in the heartland of the Middle East, and Israel has never wanted to be part of the region. Israel has always seen itself as part of the West, and in the crisis over Gaza today, we see the same dynamic at place. The Arab world doesn't recognize Israel as legitimate. They see Israel as a Western enclave within the Middle East, and the Western powers support Israel all the way in carrying out the death and destruction in Gaza, in destroying uh, Gaza. The Western leaders have still, two months after the outbreak of the war, they still don't call for a ceasefire, only for a humanitarian call. So there is huge Western hypocrisy in uh, supporting what Israel is doing in Gaza, not calling a spade a spade, and giving Israel unconditional support and a free pass to continue with the butchery and with the destruction of Gaza. And I think this is will be to the eternal shame of the Western powers that, that they have not, not shown any humanity and any commitment to Palestinian rights. This conflict is between two national movements. The West supports Israel unconditionally, and the West is not really interested in helping the Palestinians to realize their natural right to national self-determination. Yeah, and just coming back to that prospect article, you argue there is no military solution, which many people are saying, uh, but which Benjamin Netanyahu clearly is is ignoring. And you advocate for a UN-led international coalition to step in. 
and you end your article with this paragraph, which I'll, which I'll read now, all it would take to realize it is for Israel to change its essence as a settler colonial Jewish supremacist state, for America to end its unconditional support for Israel, for the European Union to morph from a payer to an active player, for the United Nations to overcome its self-imposed impotence, and a few similar trifles. The devil is in those trifles, isn't it, Avi? But, but do you think Israel can change, will change its essence as a settler colonial Jewish supremacist state? Because I suppose that could be the signal for those other pieces that you mentioned to start falling into place. Or is that just simply asking for and hoping for too much? My conclusion is a rather cynical one and a very deeply pessimistic one because I don't believe that Israel can change its essence. The conflict is a political conflict, but Israel doesn't have a political solution to the conflict in Gaza. Israel only uses brute military force. And there is an Israeli saying, if force doesn't work, use more force. And Israeli generals have a phrase, to mow the lawn in Gaza. Every few years, they move in and they bombard the Gaza Strip by air, sea, uh, and land. They cause a huge amount of destruction, heavy casualties, uh, damage to the civilian infrastructure, and then they go home and um, without dealing with the underlying political problem. So Israel is a colonial power. The Palestinians are fighting what is probably the last anti-colonial struggle in the world uh, today. And Israel is unlikely to change its nature. So there is no impasse for change from inside Israel. There is no recognition that without peace with the Palestinians, Israel will never have security. Uh, the cycle of violence will continue forever. And I'm equally pessimistic about American change. The trouble with American support for Israel is that it is unconditional. That means that Israel can do whatever it likes without paying a price. This is why Israel gets away literally with murder and has been over many years. And as we speak, Israel is getting away literally with murder. So I don't see the likelihood of internal change in Israel. On the contrary, Israel is becoming more and more oppressive, more and more extreme, and more of a Jewish supremacist state. And I don't see the likelihood of a change in the Western policy towards Israel. There is a disconnect between the people who are overwhelmingly pro-Palestinian and the governments who are blindly and uncritically supportive of Israel, whatever it does. But that support could lead to some terrible, terrible consequences. And, uh, well, it's it's hard to find hope in, in this situation. And, and in the meantime, the Palestinians continue to pay this, this awful and, and appalling price. And as you say, our government here in the UK, the Americans, Europe, this unconditional backing for Israel is all that uh, Netanyahu needs to continue his war. And there are those who say that, you know, that one of the reasons for the war is his own 
legal difficulties that as long as the war goes on, he can keep his job. But once it's over, then um, he's in big trouble. I, I suppose we'll just have to uh, wait and see what happens. But I thank you, uh, Avi, for speaking with us today. And, and I urge everyone to to get the book. It's a, it is a wonderful, wonderful read. And, and as bleak as the situation is, I, I was inspired by your book, Avi, and it does, I think, give hope and the possibility that there are, is some um, renewal, some possibility of harmony in this very troubled region. The book's called Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Bill, for this conversation. And I hope it was of some interest to your uh, listeners. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Professor Avi Schleim, author of the recently released Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew, published by One World. It's a brilliant book that weaves the personal and the political into a uniquely compelling story. You might just want to consider giving it as a gift in the coming festive season, or buy it for yourself. It's a terrific read. You'll have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting your independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best Amina analysts, commentators, and writers. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of nearly 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights. Insights you will not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. Thank you.